Hey y'all, welcome to a surprise mini episode of Everything Trying to Kill You. So normally we analyze and make fun of horror movies, but this time we're going to give you a little sample of Mary Kay's audiobook, America's First Female Serial Killer, Jane Toppin and the Making of a Monster. Yay! <laughs> I'm so glad that y'all let me do this on our podcast. Um, yes, this is, appreciate uh, our I'm so hyped for this. <laughs> I do, I really do. Um, I'm really excited to share this. Um, I got to narrate the book myself, so you'll hear my voice some more in just a second. Um, I really hope that y'all like it, listeners, and if you want the rest of the book, it comes out on May 19th, so it'll be both like in actual hard book format and um all the links to order that from various retailers will be in the show notes for this mini episode and it will be available on amazon and audible and everywhere else buy her book buy her book (laughs) chapter 18 this was my chance to have my revenge on her She was really the first of my victims that I actually hated and poisoned with a vindictive purpose. So I let her die slowly, with gripping torture. I held her in my arms and watched with delight as she gasped her life out. From the Confession of Jane Toppin. Elizabeth Toppin had been so wounded by Jane's departure that Oramel had the good sense to never mention her name. He even steered conversation away from her when Elizabeth dredged it up out of boredom or recovered misery. When Jane wrote, Oramel opened and read her letters first, but only with Elizabeth's permission. And she seldom wrote, besides. When she did, she spoke only of herself and her own accomplishments, never asking after Elizabeth, the irony of which went unrealized to all. The letters only served to hurt Elizabeth further but Oramel seldom had it in him to destroy them completely. He just waited for the moments when his wife was particularly stable to deliver them. Look, Elizabeth had noted the last time. Even her handwriting changes toward the end. It's as if she's writing faster to get away from me. I don't know if she's writing faster, my dear, he said. Looks like she's writing drunker to me and then immediately realized that he said the exact wrong thing. This letter, however, delighted Elizabeth, for even though Jane did list her summer plans in upbeat detail, bouncing from one happy afternoon to the next, it ended with a question. Would you like to spend the summer at Buzzard's Bay with me? Elizabeth looked up from bed at Oramel. I don't believe it. He stood over her, fully dressed with hands on his hips, his belly protruding even through his vest. What's not to believe, my love? Didn't you read it before you gave it to me? Elizabeth asked. Ormel ran a white hand over his dome and then opened his palm to her. She's finally showing the gratitude you always wanted from her. Better late than never, suffer the children. I don't want her gratitude, Elizabeth sighed. It's not that. I just don't understand how she could ignore the whole childhood we had together like it never happened. She folded the letter back into thirds over the cream coverlet draped on her lap. She invited me to Katomet. He nodded and pulled off his glasses to polish them. Should I go? I think you should, my dear. 
It will do you well to get out of the house, to get the fresh air off the bay. It might do well to stir you out of your melancholia. Elizabeth tisked at him. Melancholia. I never heard of such nonsense. I'm just tired. It's the heat. Nothing is really wrong. I just can't seem to get into a content state. If a doctor diagnosed it, then it can't be nothing, darling. I'll take you to the train tomorrow. The trip will give you something to do. Something to get you out of the house, up and moving about in a setting that won't give you fainting spells from the heat. Elizabeth smiled as Oramel leaned down and kissed her white forehead. With her hair unbound around her shoulders, her skin wrinkled slightly at certain expressions. Of course, she would not wear it down in public. There, she kept it swept back, tight from her forehead, in a braided chignon, so that her face appeared smooth and young. But tomorrow, it's so soon, Elizabeth said. Nonsense, Oramel said and made toward the exit of their bedroom. There's no motive for me to be the train depot master if I can't get my beautiful wife onto a train at a moment's notice, is there? Elizabeth smiled in a way too young for her years. Excuse me, how forward of me. I meant my kind and pious wife. There's no motive for me to be the depot master if I can't get my kind and pious wife onto a train at a moment's notice. I'll send for Florence to help you pack. At the train station late the next morning, Oramel escorted his wife into her very seat on the train, partly so that she would not fret, as she often did when traveling, and partly to distract her from the soot of the platform. He asked, once they boarded, how much money she had with her. And when she said eight dollars, he scoffed and placed another forty-five in her hand. Don't come back with a penny, he said. This trip's purpose is to make you happy, spend the money. He oversaw the transport of her heavy trunk. Far too much packing for a week-long trip, he said with a good humor, into the carriage. And he aggressed only as the train started into motion. This was partly for drama. You better go, Elizabeth said, smiling too wide for public, even for the private car which he had reserved for her. Ormel kissed her on the cheek and strode deftly to the carriage door, and with much more grace than belied a man of his frame. He leapt onto the platform, turned on his heel, and bowed before putting his hat back on his bald head and blowing his wife a kiss through the window and waving until they were out of each other's view. The rest of the trip passed uneventfully, but even sitting still on a jostling cart was more stressful to Elizabeth than she realized it would be. The train stopped so often, far more often than Oramel said that it would. And now that she was on board, she noticed the whole hem of her dress had blackened with soot. No wonder he had talked her out of wearing her summer dresses, insisted on this dark gray dress under which she had to wear her tightest corset. She weakened because he told her so many times how pretty she looked in it, that the darkness of the fabric offset the whiteness of her face. When she was sure no one would walk by, she unpinned her hat and fanned herself with it until the train slowed to a halt again. By evening, she had perspired so much that she could barely contain her embarrassment when Jane threw open her arms to embrace her. The mortification was outweighed by the hug itself. Jane had gained even more weight than when she had last seen her at New Year's. And she should know, she was raised by the same mother after all, that it was impolite to embrace anyone, especially in public and in front of strangers.
This last bit, Elizabeth accidentally said aloud. Oh, no one here is a stranger, Mrs. Brigham. I know everyone in Katomet, and now they all know you. Come, the porter will bring your trunk. Don't worry. Let's get in the carriage. Mr. Davis, the landlord, he's letting us use his best carriage. I told him who you were, the wife of a deacon and a depot master, and he wouldn't hear of anything else. Come, come. Jane linked arms with Elizabeth, who was feeling faint, and they walked out of the station together. By the time they arrived at the Jason house, Elizabeth was exhausted. The stress of packing combined with the parting from her husband who so supported her, the hours-long train ride itself, and then the carriage ride full of Jane's chattering about this or that person in Katomet, and how rich or accomplished they were, took all of Elizabeth's energy. The house in which they boarded was nice enough. Nothing compared to her home, but it was still nice because of its location. And in the small dining room, Jane fed her corned beef, which she insisted was her specialty, although Elizabeth could never recall tasting corned beef, let alone Jane cooking it. She sat through supper and sipped at a glass of mineral water, that when Jane noticed her dozing, she said, Mrs. Brigham, I am so embarrassed. I should have known you would be tired after your travels. Please, excuse my presumption. If you need to sleep, then let us excuse ourselves. And with that, Elizabeth went to sleep, tired and content, in the upstairs bedroom of the house which her foster sister rented. Elizabeth rose before Jane, though it was late in the morning. She did not know what to do with herself. Normally, Florence brought in her coffee after Oramel went off to the depot. And after Florence laced her corset and helped her dress, then she would come downstairs mid-morning and stare at the pastries and eggs until they were cold. Florence chided her, and then she took her tea if no one came to call. But here she could do anything, and no one would think it was out of the ordinary. They all think that Jane is my sister, Elizabeth thought. They all think she is my sister, just as I wanted her to be, and just as she wanted to be. The thought made her smile in childish fantasy. Without dressing, she went downstairs in her lacy white summer nightgown, barefoot, hair unbound as she had never done in her own home. In the kitchen, she imitated what she had watched Jane do as a child. It took her some time, but she started the fire in the stove, and after some looking, she found the clean water, which she heated over the eye. While she waited, she went upstairs, knelt by the bed, and retrieved her chamber pot. She walked outside and dumped it in the outhouse. That stench, she thought, how horrible. And to think someone empties everyone's chamber pot here. To think Jane had to do this for the household for all these years. She walked back into the house to find the kettle screaming and Jane entering the kitchen. Elizabeth made to apologize, but Jane grabbed a rag from the sideboard, wrapped it around the handle of the teapot, and moved it to the back burner. Elizabeth noticed that Jane was already dressed, though her hair was disheveled, and she wanted to weep at the thought of her translucent nightgown without her corset and only her drawers underneath. I'm sorry I'm not dressed, Jane, she murmured, chewing the inside of her cheek and folding her arms over her small chest. Jane looked over her shoulder and inhaled through a clogged nose. I haven't even undressed yet. There's no need to apologize. And she trudged heavy-footed back upstairs. Elizabeth's coffee was full of grounds, over-sugared and weak. But it was the best she'd ever had because she made it herself. 
She dressed herself for the first time in years. A loose corset that let her breathe, the old-fashioned drawers with separate legs, which she preferred. A white cotton dress, low slippers since there was no mud here, no city filth against which an ankle boot had to shield, and a striped sailor cap that she could never wear at home. She had bought two, in secret, years before, and never had the gall to wear them. Elizabeth walked down the stairs with the ease of one barely dressed, the hat box under one arm, to find Jane in the kitchen, hunched over a low table by a window, a cup of black coffee between her swollen hands, better groomed, but in only her chemise. At Elizabeth's shocked expression, Jane grinned. It's my own house, she said. It's a beautiful thing to do whatever one wants. She leaned back in her chair, and Elizabeth saw the stains on her chemise, under her arms and free-floating breasts, and observed with some trepidation. Come sit down. Have some coffee with me. Elizabeth thought to where she had left her mug, and when she realized it was still upstairs, she climbed up to her room and then back, and when she arrived, her heart was racing and her face was flushed, like when she and Jane used to play at picnics when they were young. She grinned and sat across from Jane. Jesus, God, Jane said, looking at Elizabeth's cup. It's full of crowns, wash it out. Elizabeth still smiled in an awkward way and stood and did as she was told, and then sat back at the banquette with her clean cup, and she remembered the hat box. I got this for you, she said. Before Jane could open it, she blurted, it's the same as mine. I always wanted us to dress alike when we were girls, and mother, well, you know how. She expected Jane to interrupt, but when she didn't, she continued. You know how, um, fixated on decorum she was. Jane lifted her eyebrows once, and then straightened her posture. She lifted the lid off the box and removed a sailor's hat, identical to Elizabeth's, and placed it on her head. How does it look? Jane asked. Ridiculous and childish, and I love it, she said in a rush, bringing her coffee to her lips. Oh, this tastes so much better than the pot I tried to make. Jane tipped her head, and then she said, as if by way of explanation, I have a lifetime of experience. She smiled and stood, and stretched again before she leaned down and hugged Elizabeth again. Thank you. Let me dress, then we can pack a picnic and go down to the cove. It dawned on Elizabeth that Jane dressed by herself, corset and all, and she turned in her chair to say, do you need help? Jane's head rocked back with a sharp laugh as she mounted the steps and said, I know I'm heavier than before, but I think I can manage a flight of stairs. No, I meant, oh, I am sorry. I'll be down in just a moment, enjoy your coffee. Elizabeth did enjoy her coffee, even a third cup, which she never permitted herself at home because it seemed gluttonous. And Oramel did say that she should use the trip to make herself happy. She leaned forward, elbows on the table, which she had never been permitted. And she watched out the window at the peaceful street, children in light-colored clothes, skipping barefoot around the lawn as they emerged from the other boarding houses. Their mothers came out onto the porches in their high-necked cotton and watched. Their hands idled as they spoke to one another across the yard, and they did not even walk closer to keep their voices low. And why should they, Elizabeth wondered. Their husbands were all still in the cities. 
There was no one for whom they had to compress themselves. She smiled from inside the house, watching the families with their breadwinners missing, envious of their freeness, but too shy to take advantage of her own, until Jane came down the steps with a picnic basket under her arm. Elizabeth saw that she wore a white dress similar to her own, but of less refined fabric, and she had brushed back her hair, smooth under the striped cap. You look so happy, Elizabeth said. I'm glad you look so happy. Jane suppressed her smile. Oh, it's nice to see you, Mrs. Brigham. I just wish this headache would quit pounding. I may have some smelling salts in my bag, she said, and made to rise from the table. Jane waved her back and opened a bottle of mineral water and drank it straight from the bottle, which surprised Elizabeth. Instead, she asked if she had ever tasted salt water taffy before. When Elizabeth said she had not, Jane said that they should walk to town to buy some. And then they would go down to the cove to enjoy the sun and the water. The afternoon passed exactly as Jane had planned it for them. They walked into town for the candy, which Elizabeth insisted on paying for, since Jane had opened her home to her, but made so much less money than Oramel. And on the walk, Elizabeth chattered about how much lighter she felt in Katamit. Maybe it was because the town wasn't so filthy, or that she could wear shoes that fit her feet, or that she didn't have to be constricted by her tightest corset so she could breathe. As they walked back to the house and gathered the corned beef and candy and mineral water into the basket which Jane carried down to the cove, Elizabeth continued to talk about her moods. She was so accustomed to talking to Oromel and the few of her friends who were married to his colleagues that she mistook Jane's polite silence for genuine interest. She carried on about her lightness, that maybe it was because she didn't know anyone here and no one expected anything from her because they didn't know her or her husband's family. They just knew that she was Jane's sister. Maybe it was because she had no responsibilities here or because Jane took such excellent care of her. There was no one to host in the afternoon, no one to put on airs for or try to impress. It was so nice that she could just relax, finally, and be herself. She turned to Jane as they sat on the shore, her hat sliding to the left of her head as the fine tendrils of hair that came loose at the temples blew in her face. Jane noticed them streaked with gray in the summer sun. Freckles came out on Elizabeth's face, which she had never seen before, probably because she spent her life under a parasol, if not indoors. Her cheeks pinkened and she smiled. I am so enjoying my time here with you, she said. I feel like now we are really sisters, just as we always wanted to be. It's so nice to be unencumbered by the world, so carefree. Jane smiled and nodded, but recalled the previous month she had spent in a sick room with an ailing patient who openly cried at all hours, who screamed for Jane when she left the room to fetch her dinner or to go to the outhouse. She remembered at the wake when she approached the woman's son about the six weeks payment she was owed. He derided her for cheapening his mother's memory by talking about money and walked away to the other younger siblings to immediately relay the incident to them in flagrant exaggeration. She had returned to the Davis's Jason house in a panic, offering to care for Minnie, the matriarch, in exchange for an extension on the mounting rent which had accumulated from summers past. 
unencumbered by the world, Jane thought, carefree. At the end of the afternoon, the women returned to the house Jane let, and Elizabeth said she felt drained from the sun, overheated. I think I'll lie down before supper. Bring up some water for me? She asked, and then with a broad smile said, please, if you don't mind. Jane obliged, pouring the mineral water over three tablets of strychnine and stirring it in a clean glass before carrying it up on a tray for her foster sister. Elizabeth was relieved that the water was in a glass. It's bitter, she said. Is that because of the minerals? Jane said that it was. Isn't it nice to feel so free, she said, handing the glass back to Jane. Jane did not reply. Rather, she set the glass on the sideboard and sat in a chair next to the bed. Elizabeth did not ask why she did this, because she was glad of her company. Elizabeth kept talking about how glad she felt to be with Jane and how this sisterliness was what she had always wanted between them. She wished she had been strong enough in those days of Jane's childhood to stand up to her mother, to live with Ormel alone so that Jane could have worked her indenture as the asylum intended it. Or maybe she could have convinced Ormel to just adopt Jane. Her hindsight was clear, of course, but wouldn't it have been nice if Jane had been adopted so that she could have been loved as she deserved, as every child deserves? But naturally, by the time she began talking about Jane instead of herself, Elizabeth was no longer speaking English words. She babbled, and then shortly, she was distracted by the texture of the Madalese bedspread, and she picked at it until Jane walked back to the bed and hovered watching as Elizabeth's eyes darted from Jane to the things behind her that did not exist. She moved her mouth in spasms, no sounds emitting from it at all anymore, as if trying to warn Jane of something. What is it she sees? Jane wondered for a moment. What is it that she thinks she sees? She watched patiently until Elizabeth threw back her head, and then Jane threw back the bedspread. Elizabeth did not come down for breakfast in the morning. When Jane was the top and servant, she woke early to prepare the meal for the whole house, and Elizabeth would often sleep through it. When she did wake, Jane held open the decadent dresses for her with envy, helped her down the stairs, made sure her rooms were warm or cool enough, and then reheated her food and made a fresh pot of coffee before resuming the work that she had stopped when Elizabeth rang. Now, she was not Elizabeth's servant, and she would not reheat food for her. Rather than yell up the stairs, though, Jane climbed up to Elizabeth's room. When she entered, she saw her foster sister's face was badly sunburned. Her eyes did not open, but this was not unusual. Jane nudged her shoulder, and Elizabeth did not move. With her fingers under Elizabeth's jaw, she felt that her pulse was pounding. She breathed thinly. Jane shook her again, and Elizabeth's eyelids rose slightly, exposing their whites, and her head lilted over her shoulder before she began to shake violently. Jane hastened down the stairs. In a trot to waken her own breathing, Jane moved across the lawn to her landlord's house. Please, 
she said to the maid who answered. Call a physician. Ask the coachman to send a telegraph to Oramel T. Brigham. He'll be at the First Trinitarian Church in Lowell. Tell him Elizabeth is ill. He should come to Katamit right away. Oramel received the telegraph at the end of Sunday afternoon service, and he had his coachman take him straight to the depot without packing. The stuttering rage he erupted onto his employee upon finding there was no Sunday night train to Cape Cod was not viewed as wrath on a Sabbath, but a complex way of grieving, a panic on behalf of his beloved wife. Besides, no one of import was there to witness the verbal battery. Once he tired himself out, the attendee booked him a first-class passage on the train the following morning. Oramel did not sleep, but went home and sat in the kitchen, smoking his pipe in his rocking chair through the dwindling of the light through Florence's many entreaties to eat something, to change, to get some rest, to wash up before he went to the train. And even as the sky grayed with the morning twilight again, he barely rose, but to pummel his way back to the coach, back to the depot, out to Cape Cod. Jane was not in the coach that retrieved him from Cape Cod to go to Buzzards Bay. The coachman told him she did not want to leave the side of her sister and Oramel could get no further information from him. He did not even bother to correct the coachman that Jane and his wife were not sisters, for it seemed a mere triviality when faced with something as dire as Elizabeth's survival. Oramel huffed straight to the house where the people gathered, and he followed their whisperings up to his wife's bedroom, where he barely registered Jane or the doctor's presence before falling to Elizabeth's side. She had by this time fallen pallid and sweaty, despite her overexposure to the sun. My darling, he said to her, and though he did not hear Jane do so, she introduced him to the doctor. He explained to Oramel that his wife had suffered a stroke of apoplexy. He suspected a hemorrhage in her brain, for nothing could incapacitate a healthy woman so quickly but an unprecedented cerebral burst. She was not in good health, Oramel said. She had melancholia. She came to visit Jane here to fix her sadness. He turned his mournful eyes to Jane for the first time. She rose and placed a hand on his shoulder, which startled the doctor and Oramel both. She was happy, Jane said. We had the most lovely day by the beach. We picnicked, and she talked of how much you loved her, how sweet you were to send her out and how she wished you were here with her. She was healing Mr. Brigham, and there was no way to prevent or anticipate this stroke. At this, she looked up toward the doctor for confirmation. He nodded curtly. Oramel fell into a weeping frenzy, clutching for his wife's hands until she began to seize again, at which he leapt up from the bedside and watched in horror as Jane and the doctor moved to restrain her limbs until the convulsion subsided. What was that, he asked. What is happening to her? Oramel sat by Elizabeth weeping through the night until a final spasm took her life from her body. He held one hand and Jane supported her head in the crook of her arm. Jane did not weep. She stared on at Elizabeth, holding her hand long after the seizure abated. She waited with him while he mourned. She waited for him to ask her to call for the doctor, which she did and then waited for him to call for the coroner. 
The following day, Jane looked on, awaiting instructions from Ormel, as, at his insistence, he packed away Elizabeth's belongings to return to Lowell. Her body, said the coroner, would board the train with him that afternoon. And then the funeral could be held, at the deceased's wishes, in her hometown. He took much longer to pack than he should have, Jane noticed. He went through each portion of her most intimate belongings with such detail that it should have embarrassed him. Would he have rifled through her toilet when she was alive? Would he have folded her soiled under things with such care then? Upon looking into her handbag, her change purse, he noticed that she only had five dollars folded in carefully. He looked up at Jane and asked half-heartedly, where's the rest of Elizabeth's money? Jane started. I do not know that she had any more, sir. She insisted yesterday on paying for the candy for her picnic. And that their purse is the only one I saw her use. I suppose she might have moved the rest for safety, though. She was always so careful. Oramel nodded in agreement. Do you, Jane? He reached for her hand, and Jane, in surprise, walked to the side of the trunk and pressed it. Jane, she was my life. I cannot even think a straight line. Tell me, please. Are there other of her belongings in the house? I can't bear to leave just yet. Jane squeezed his hand once more and said, of course, I will be glad to be of use. I only wish I knew what was, I wish that I knew how to help her when she most needed it. Oramel released her hand and removed his glasses. With his other hand, he squeezed the bridge of his nose as he dropped his face to the ground. After wiping their lenses with his handkerchief, he replaced them on his nose and blinked heavily and then said, did she say anything else yesterday before she went? Jane drew her lips and shook her head. Nothing of note yesterday? She paused and then made as if to start anew before she shook her head again and bit her lip. What, what is it, Jenny? Any words of my beloved's will do me good to hear. Just before she slipped into the coma, just before you got here, she said to me that if she died, oh, I can't. You must tell me. She said, Jane sighed and wrung her hands. She said I was to tell you that if she died, she wanted you to give me the gold watch she wore so often. She said it was because it used to be her mother's, and she said, at this, Jane's voice broke. She said it used to be her mother's, and even though she wasn't my mother, she knew that Auntie was the only mother that I had known and how much it would mean to me that I could wear it in her memory. She said, oh, I can't go on, Mr. Brigham. Jane did not believe her own lie, despite that it was the truest one she'd ever told. Oramel's eyes welled up again at the thoughtfulness of his dead wife, and without hesitation, he went to her trunk and to her jewelry box and held out three different watches. Which one was hers? <laughs> That's it. That's all you can have for free. Um, I hope that you enjoyed the audiobook sample. And if you did, you could just click through our show notes to pre-order. Uh, it was America's first female serial killer, Jane Toppin and the Making of a Monster. And it releases on May 19th. And so wasn't that amazing? Very long. And thank you for listening. And thank you. Yeah.
Thank you, Mary and Rachel, for letting me do this. And, um, okay, love you, bye. Love you, bye. Love you, bye. (laughs)